you're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 29. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're having a great week. As you probably read the title of this episode, you might have asked yourself, seriously, we're talking about apples? Today, I wanted to share with you my love affair with apples. The more I learn about them, the more fascinated I become. And so to answer some of my questions, I invited a guest. His name is Matt Kaminsky. Matt is an orchardist and arborist. He is also a cider maker, writer, and a musician. And today he's going to share with us his passion for this amazing fruit. I hope you will really enjoy the episode and you will never look at apples or all the products that made from apples the same way ever again. Enjoy. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me, Lana. I am so excited. So um, we met probably about a year ago. And for the listeners of this podcast, they know that I love my farmer's market. And so this is a place where we met. And so I started asking you tons of different questions. And so uh, the last time I saw you, I actually was delighted that you would be interested in talking to people about what you do and just the whole huge area and field related to apple growing, right? And uh, making variety of different products. All right. So with most of my guests, one of the first questions is always talk to us about your journey. How did you become an orchardist or cider maker? Like what, what brought you to this? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. It started when I was in college, actually, in my undergraduate studies. Uh, I attended Hampshire College, which is small school in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, pretty close to the orchard that I now work in, but uh, they, on their campus, have uh, a whole, you know, orchard that has just fallen into disarray that no one has taken care of for, you know, some decades now because it was, it was on that land long before the college was created. So there was kind of an unutilized resource that I saw as soon as I got there and realized, okay, this could be really repurposed and have a you know big impact on me as well as other other people in the community. So I had a broad agricultural interest, but without much focus. Um, and because Hampshire College has this free roaming education model or you know self-guided, uh, it, it gave me a good opportunity to kind of play around with with a you know, a whole ecosystem and just say, okay, well, I've got a little bit of freedom here. I can plant this kind of area in in a certain way and prune trees in a certain way and just have have no repercussions for doing things wrong. And you can kind of learn 
And so I found, I found that to be a really valuable way to learn. And because it was such a fertile, fertile ground for learning, I just kept going down the rabbit hole of apple growing and apple varieties and just how different it all could be and what, you know, abounding useful products you can make from, from apples and just the whole, you know, the his, historical component about it too was, was always very fascinating to me. So. Okay. So <laughs> the apple kind of like invited you, the orchards invited you into their lives. And so yeah, did, totally. did you study agriculture or, uh, or something else? I did. I studied agriculture uh, with a focus on sustainable growing practices and how, how we can make farming kind of more, more sustainable, not just for the environmental reasons, but also like economic reasons that, that farming, uh, you know, can be improved from what it is now, uh, for our food producers. That's awesome. And I'm definitely going to pick your brain on this a little bit later in our interview. But before we get there, so um, you, uh, you said that apples kind of found you because of that orchard. But what happened after that? So you graduated from college and, you know, you could have taken a, a lot of different paths. But the one that you ended up on brought you to cider making and orchards again. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah. So, so interestingly enough, the same uh, kind of remnants of the orchard that was at Hampshire College mm -hmm. were also present in that that community in that neighborhood uh, of South Amherst, Massachusetts, and a neighboring farm that was near the college but not connected. Uh, they had, you know, really made a business out of out of growing apples all you know for the last fifteen years. Uh, and so I just wrote them an email one day. I was like, all right, guys, I'm graduating, looking for a job, wondering if you have any openings at all. It felt like a shot in the dark, but they, uh, they, they were actually looking for a new assistant grower. And I thought, oh man, that's pretty amazing. But they didn't, you know, they didn't expect much from, from me, just a college, recent college graduate. And it was kind of a big role to fill, but uh, they were very, very kind. Uh, in terms of teaching me the the necessary skills and gave me a lot of responsibility and, and space to learn that craft. So I was lucky to find a, a very nurturing, you know, family farm that could that could help me through the process of just just having some legs to stand on as far as being an apple grower or just a, a, a new apple grower, I should say. <laughs> so that sounds really interesting. So tell us, like, so the average person probably does not know what uh, an apple grower does, whether it is in a day or during the entire year. How, how, how does it work? Tell us more about what you do. Well, I like, to, I like to quantify that question in terms of like a whole calendar year because really okay. orcharding is a year-round thing. So I call yeah. it the orchard calendar going from, you know, January 1st to December 31st. Sure. Um, so like in, in the winter is really when the orchard year starts rather than in the spring when things start to thaw out. Like, you know, the way most people would think about farming in general is on a spring to fall, mm -hmm. uh, you know, planting, harvesting cycle. The same thinking applies, except we have a lot of work to do in the winter, which is when we cut cut the trees back, pruning takes you know it depends on how big the orchard is but it can take some months of work every single day 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it starts in the winter and the day-to-day in that part of the year is just, you know, climbing trees and cutting cutting wood to help the tree kind of renew its fruiting cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a combination of self-expression and also kind of looking at what the tree needs. So it's really, it's a wonderful, relaxing, therapeutic thing if you're, if you're kind of comfortable with what that process involves. Um, so you can, you can really prune all throughout the spring until the fruits start to form. But if you are really diligent on your pruning, then it's done by April usually. Okay. All right. And so, so what's the next step? So after pruning, and by the way, it sounds like there is a little bit of science there, but there is a lot of art there as well. Yeah, I think orcharding in general is both an art and a science, but it's kind of a shifting equilibrium. You know, early on in the process of learning the pruning techniques, it's really you're focusing more on the science, just putting the the, the responsibility to make a an accurate cut that's not going to harm the tree but actually help the tree that's that's the first priority when you're just getting the techniques down but as i said once you start getting comfortable with it it can be this whole artistic expression and a whole creative component to it which which really brings a new dimension of joy to doing that work especially in the winter when it's not really all that easy to get yourself outside and work up a sweat <laughs> every single day so Definitely. So, and then during the spring and then summer months, what, what do you do? Well, it's a lot of planting, getting, getting things ready. I mean, there's, there's so much that you can be doing in terms of preparing the soil and enriching the trees, making sure that there aren't any weeds and vines that are going to try and overtake the tree. Um, you know, the same kind of gardening tasks that you might do in a vegetable garden or, you know, even a a container garden but just applied in this in a very large context of an orchard with you know a grassy understory and a bunch of trees so um we're planting all the way until you know obviously until there's no more trees to plant but usually it'll take a month or so to get all the holes dug and all the new trees in the ground and um I feel like most of the orchards I know have to plant some trees every year because if a tree, you know, if a tree dies of old age or dies of disease or some other kind of malady, then you have to replace it. So there's always some kind of planting to be doing. I know that uh, in the fall, so perhaps August, September, these are the busiest months, I'm assuming, in terms of the harvest, right? Um, Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so because of their, uh, the amount of the, just the sheer number of apple varieties that there are, there's such a range um, of time that you're going to be harvesting. So really, it's not just August, September. It really is more like late July to mid-November wow. that you can be harvesting apples. So um, the, the heaviest and most intense times are definitely September and October for us. Um, but, uh, harvest really does begin in the late summer and going all the way through, you know, to, to the end of, end of autumn or close to the end of autumn in, in November. So it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a time that you must celebrate because it's just so much to enjoy 
not just apples, but you know, everything around the foliage is very beautiful in the orchard. And um, it's the time that we're making cider and processing the harvest too. So half the battle is getting the fruit from the trees and the other half is, is to store it well so it doesn't turn bad on us and press it for cider, um, make it into applesauce and, and other, other types of things. So it's really the best time of year, although it's, it's like a big push to the, to the, it feels like a race to the finish line to get it all done when you're there because the worst thing would be to have anything go to waste. Of course. And so it's interesting because you brought several um, points that I would like to follow up on. So um, one of them was that uh, the cider making begins and also there are a variety of other things that you are making from apples. So uh, can you name just a few products that, you know, you guys typically create or make from your apples? Of the whole apple harvest, you can make things made from the cider, which is hard cider, sweet, fresh cider that you can just drink and enjoy, uh, as well as things such as cider syrup, cider vinegar. Uh, and these are all just apple juice plus some kind of process we put it through to get it to either you know, turn to vinegar, turn very acidic, or to reduce to a thick syrup, or ferment into a nice sparkling wine, for example. Um, and then the other half of that is things like applesauce, things that you're going to eat or put up for the winter. Um, we freeze a lot of apples. Uh, we make applesauce, apple jam, and apple butter are all, all super, super worthwhile and things that you're kind of sorry if you miss every year. So um, there's so, I mean, the list really does go on, but those are definitely my favorites and, and a few of the highlights. That, that's awesome. So um, when I invited you to come and to do this interview for the podcast, um, I shared with you that the audience is young professionals and college students that are interested to have a stress-free and balanced life. And so a lot of the things that are typically recommended are related to food or herbs or self-care techniques. And so I started getting fascinated about apples a couple of years back. And so I think my fascination nations began by reading um, Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire. And so there are four different plants that he describes. One of them is apple. And so he goes into history and he talks about wild apples and cultivated varieties and all these different things. But so one of the main reasons why I wanted to, uh, to chat with you is to sort of to talk a little bit about the health benefits of all these different products that you are talking. By the way, I am completely addicted to a switchel, which you will have <laughs> to talk a little bit about like what it is. Um, but also like how are these things used, when they're used, what, what is the difference between them? Of course. Well, one easy way to break that up is things that will have medicinal or health benefits. Mm -hmm. um, those are definitely also very tasteful and delicious and can be worked into cuisine in really creative ways, um, but undoubtedly do have, have a, you know, a wellness component, a medicinal component to them. Uh, and then the other half is kind of more of the culinary or gastronomic stuff, like Sure. Fine cider and, you know, pairing the right cider with the right meal. And, you know, so there, there's, there's a, kind of a lot of depth there. Um, but 
each each will have their own purpose. That's for example, you mentioned Switchel, which I think is kind of the crown jewel of medicinal and you know so, something that is a, a fixture of culinary use as well. It's Tell us super what it super. Is. It's a unique beverage. It's a mixture of apple cider vinegar, cider syrup, or some other kinds of sweeteners have been used throughout history in different, you know, different editions of that recipe. But the traditional sweetener to use is cider syrup, just mm-hmm. boiled cider, and ginger root is the third ingredient. So then you have switchel in its undiluted form. Then you would typically mix that concoction into a big barrel or jug of water mm-hmm. and drink it slowly throughout the day as you're working up a sweat or exerting a lot of energy working out um, and it its purpose is to be a you know a probiotic beverage the vinegar you must insist that you get unpasteurized cider vinegar because that will deliver the probiotic component of that um, really goes a long way for your digestive health and will really help to you know help expel any any you know phlegm or mucus in your in your throat it really clears you out and it's a cleansing kind of beverage um and it's also very delicious because cider syrup has kind of a cutting acidity and sweet balance to it and the ginger root really helps to just mellow everything out tie it together um and you can make it as sweet or sour or as strong as you'd like if you make it yourself, which is one of the, uh, another one of the joys of, of Switchel. <laughs> it's very easy to make. That's awesome. And so I actually have a bottle of Switchel in my refrigerator at work and I have one at home. And so I, it took me a little time to get used to the, the flavor. But um, so a lot of people think, why, do you, why would you drink apple cider vinegar or why would you drink any type of vinegar, even if it is diluted? Can you talk a little bit more about this? Absolutely. Yeah, I, it is kind of a confounding thing for some, but if you examine the his- history of vinegar and its uses, it's, it is one of the most traditional medicines, one of the most wide, widely used medicines in history. Um, and, you know, thousands and thousands of years have gone by where that has been a fix. Fruit vinegars, particularly apple vinegar, has, has been a fixture of digestive health. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of varying you know, studies that have, that have been conducted on what the specific, you know, observable benefits of cider vinegar have been. But one thing that I, I have really noticed, at least in my own use, is that, uh, you know, in our society, we eat so much carbohydrates and it has the tendency to slow us down and kind of, you know, it elicits sluggishness and just feel kind of heavy. Um, cider vinegar helps to curb your body's response to carbohydrate intake. So having that as part of your, your daily routine or your daily, you know, regimen of, of vitamins or just things that supplements that make you feel good, um, will really help to kind of lighten you up. And even the taste kind of suggests that it's very, it is very enlivening. So, um, that's that's what I find most useful for it, but it goes way beyond that. Um, as I was saying before, 
it helps to kind of, if you, if you have like a, a cold, as many of us at the turn of winter and spring do, uh, it helps to really clear out your sinuses and kind of lighten up your throat. It might be, you know, yeah, if you have a lingering cough or something, it'll really help to burn out all the discomfort of that. <clears throat> so whether or not it's... Yeah, go ahead. Whether or not it's a scientific, you know, answer, which some people are more interested in, in ob obtaining uh, as far as what cider vinegar can specifically do for you, um, or if you just kind of observe how your body reacts to it, I think that there's benefits to be enjoyed by everyone. Very interesting. So there are a number of things that you have mentioned that I actually want to go back to. So one of them is sure. you talked about the, the medicinal aspect of it, using uh, cider vinegar to, to use it for like colds and stagnation and things of that type. There is um, a product, well, not a product, there is a recipe, very well-known recipe that is called fire cider, which I am sure that you're familiar with, which is, you know, apple cider vinegar with tons of ginger and garlic and, you know, any of the pungent. So it might be horseradish, it might be hot peppers. And so you add a little bit honey to this and you put all of these things together and then you take a shot every, whether it is every day or at the times when you really need to clear your sinuses or clear your head. And this is something that has been taught or is taught to any um, herbalist that is uh, starting their studies. So that's definitely one of those traditional recipes that um, is often used. The other thing that you mentioned is the flavor of the cider vinegar or generally like, you know, apple. So there is certainly acidity there and there is also sweetness. And so I kind of want to, to come back to both of them. So mm -hmm. in terms of acidity, so I'm, uh, it's suggesting that there is, there are acids there, but there is also vitamin C, which is also ascorbic acid. So I'm assuming that this component is uh, definitely used for health and wellness. Um, the other element as far as taste and flavors is, and a couple of weeks back, I interviewed someone about bitter flavors and I, I talked to you about bitter flavors a few weeks back as well because some ciders could have a little bit of bitterness in them. Um, but the acidity is also very important for us, for our livers and for, you know, for various other functions. So uh, are, you be, uh, are you able to tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the acid that makes vinegar vinegar at least you know what you react to as a consumer of vinegar you'll you'll be really tasting the acetic acid mm -hmm. and the acetic acid in cider vinegar is i think the active ingredient in what's really causing all these health health benefits um and the way that you get that acetic acid into the cider vinegar is by allowing the oxygen you know the just the surrounding air to interact with that cider while it's turning to vinegar because it's the oxygen borne um you know populations of microbes and, and microorganisms that create that mm -hmm. and so to me that really just seems like a no-brainer that having the living micro microorganism populations around that create this acidity in the cider vinegar that is something that you definitely want to be encouraging in, you know, in your body's microflora as well. 
few weeks back, um, I talked to a kombucha maker. Um, and so she uh -huh. was also talking to us about fermentation process. So this is also, we are talking about different types of, uh, different type of fermentation, right? So this is the fermenting apple juice um, that uh, is happening during the cider making, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so what exactly is fermentation? Fermentation is simply put the, the transformation of sugars into alcohol or lactic acid. I mean, there's a number of things that different microorganisms can transform sugars into, but it, it is the, the basic process of metabolizing sugars and uh, altering the chemistry of, of that by, by changing those sugars into alcohol, in the case of alcoholic fermentations, in the case of lactic acid fermentations, then that can also be transferred into acids. Um, so there's there's all sorts of fermentations that go on. Particularly with fruit, though, you're you're more likely to get uh, alcoholic fermentations. So in the case of cider, you get those, and even within that, there are you know different different ways you can monitor the fermentation. Ones that might produce something like a, a fine cider, something you drink a nice alcoholic apple wine or different you know ways you can treat fermentations uh, and conditions you can expose the microorganisms to to encourage the production of that acetic acid you know for vinegar making so there are different techniques that may, may sound a little complicated but it's actually pretty rudimentary when you talk about the practicality of of actually making it happen um, so it's it's pretty easy to do because apples are just they're just built to ferment okay all right so um and the percent of alcohol for example that you're talking about that happens during fermentation it is varied so some of your uh cider wines are going to have less alcohol than maybe pomol could you talk to us about you know different types of alcoholic beverages that are actually created from apples absolutely there are, there are really a lot, um, but one way that I think would be really easy to understand and break things up a little bit would be to, to think about cider, just hard cider, like, like many of us are familiar with, uh, being just a, a fermented beverage. That's the only process that's involved in getting the apple juice from fresh, freshly pressed apple juice to a finished hard cider. The only thing that's involved in that is alcoholic fermentation. Once you uh, include other processes into that equation, such as distillation, which is you know a whole a whole different set of of chemistry and, and chemical laws that you're taking into consideration, then you've got kind of a two a twofold process where you have a fermentation and then a distillation process, um, and so the, that type of you know, processing can can give you stuff like pomo, which is a kind of a dessert aperitif beverage. Um, it's much higher in alcohol than traditional hard cider. That'll vary um, by about 13% alcohol. Where you know hard cider will typically be around five to seven, maybe eight percent alcohol, whereas pomo can be upwards of 20% alcohol. Mm. Um, and so it depends on really what type of you know, apple consumer, apple enthusiast, or or just alcohol consumer in general, you are or or would like to explore more. But 
there are so many um, that kind of stick to different regions throughout the world. Every, every, everyone has figured out a way to enjoy apples in a, in some fermented sense uh, throughout the world. That's awesome. So when you are talking about um, uh, hard ciders and different types of apple ciders, I know that, for example, um, your company makes a variety of different flavors and variety of different tastes. You guys sometimes add berries and sometimes you add ginger and sometimes things are a lot drier and sometimes they are going to be more, much more mild in flavor. So could you talk to us just a little bit, uh, a taste of like what happens once you have this first step of fermentation that is present? What is the next step? Is it like a second well, then, fermentation or what, what is happening then? Yeah, well, there is, there is a second fermentation that happens in all hard cider making. The primary or the first fermentation will take place at, over a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like four to six weeks at the most. And then once that first step is done, then you kind of have a lot of freedom in terms of exploring what you want this cider to end up tasting like. You know, you, you have the option to add different sorts of things like other fruits. As you were mentioning, we, we've made a, uh, a black currant infused hard cider before that people have. Yeah, it's, it's one of the favorites of our customers. Um, we've made gingered cider before, and there are so many more possibilities. Um, and you know, if you, if you're interested in making something other than like a fruit flavored cider, because honestly, I think the most interesting and uh, intriguing ciders are ones that actually are just apples, no, no amended fruits in there. Um, and things that kind of focus on the nuances of, of the cider, maybe like the nuances of a single variety or a couple specific varieties of apple, or perhaps ones that were, that were fermented in a certain kind of material, such as like oak barrels or, or other types of, of barrels that, that can also be very different and uh, affect the finished cider in a really intriguing and interesting way. Uh, and I know that not everyone will want to go out and buy some barrels to put their cider in. But sure. as I said, it's about, it's about exploration and, and kind of having fun with it. Um, you can, you can definitely add herbs to cider in the secondary fermentation and that, that phase, uh, no matter what you add to it or, or no matter, uh, whether you decide to add anything or not, will, will be the longer of those two fermentations where you really want to let that sit for anywhere from like six weeks to six months. Um, and that will just kind of let the cider give, give itself some depth of flavor, um, as well as just make sure you've, you've fermented all of the sugar all the way out of the cider, which not only is a, a healthful move to reduce your sugar intake, especially when it's combined with alcohol, but also uh, just to achieve what, what we would call a dry cider. So dry, in this sense, is the opposite of sweet. Um, so very interesting. It's all about expression. So it, there is a lot of science there, but there is a lot of art there as well. Um, I think what fascinates me about ciders is that there are a lot of different varieties of apples 
And so, uh, I don't know, I have been taught Honeycrisps or, I don't know, uh, Granny Smith or whatever it is, but there is just such a huge variety of them. Um, and at the same time, I know that you have really looked at this other element, this other side of it, the, the wild apples versus the cultivated ones, right? And so... Um, the other piece that is also very intriguing to me is that we are, uh, in our culture, we're taught to think that this is good and this is not good, or this is the best and this is perhaps not. And so mm -hmm. I want you to, to talk about several different things. So one of them is, um, can you just discuss in general, so for example, with cultivated apples, what are the, the primary um, I guess, direction. So there are sweet apples, there are sour apples, there are certain things that you use for baking and cooking. Can, can you kind of like uh, educate us a little bit on, on that? And then I'll ask my next question about the wild ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it, to answer your question about how to classify different apples uh, across the different categories, um, the, there's two kinds of, of I guess, sets of criteria that you would use to classify them in terms of apples that you use for baking, eating, um, applesauce, these sorts of things. You can, you can call them pretty much anything that feels descriptive of that apple's flavor. So as you said, sweet uh, is pretty much describes every apple. Tart or sour can describe the amount of acids in the apple that your tongue is reacting to in kind of like a you know sour puckery tart way um, and of course there are there are even some apples for fresh eating that have some amount of tannins in them which are responsible for creating bitterness and kind of like a fullness of of flavor in the mouth um, and you know there, there's a lot of terminology that's thrown out about this is, you know, say, for example, this is a sweet apple. This is a sweet, sharp apple. This is a, you know, there's a lot of different terms that apply, but I think as far as eating and cooking apples, you just use whatever adjectives come to mind. I'm, I'm a proponent of using really creative ones, like, you know, calling a really, really powerfully sour apple, calling them like electric or something, you know, <laughs> just getting creative with it because they're, there are too many apples to only use the words sweet and sour, you know? Okay. And so, so the next piece of it is uh, wild apples. So based on my understanding, apples come from Kazakhstan, right? And I know that there are places here in the United States and all over the world where people are actually very interested in having an um wild apples and propagating them as much as possible, not necessarily cultivating, but making sure that they are around. And based on my understanding, I think that one of the elements that is very important is that the cultivated apple can uh, experience variety of different pests and predators and, you know, disease and things of that type. And so wild apples, when they are combined or somehow um, come into this mix, is actually a protection, is a protection for these genes, protection for this fruit. So I know that a lot of your work has to do with wild apples. And I really would love you to talk a little bit about wild apples, how you uh, look at them, how you see them, and also perhaps a little bit about 
the environmental changes that we are experiencing right now and the changes in uh, temperatures and things of that type and how apples um, are adapting or should be adapting and what uh, humans can do to help with this. Absolutely. So just uh, to start that, I want to give our listeners a little bit of background um, just as a fundamental piece of knowledge for understanding why, for example, there are wild apples and cultivated apples. Um, and that foundational piece of information is, is just maintaining in the back of your mind that apple seeds, you know, everyone has eaten an apple and bit open the core and found a bunch of seeds. If you were to plant those seeds and grow out a big tree uh, in order to, you know, grow some apples, you would not actually be growing a tree that produces the parent variety. So that's an important thing to, to remember. Um, so by, by saying this, forgive me for interrupting you, if I'm eating my honey crisp, when I put those seeds into the ground, it won't come out as a honey crisp, right? Correct. It will be something different. It may be slightly different. It may be drastically different, but it will absolutely be different. And it's, it's kind of the same reasoning that like, you know, we don't, look exactly the same as our parents you know we we are a very uh complex genetic species so are apples so there's a lot of biodiversity packed into those seeds and in order to express the exact same apple um like a honey crisp for example you need to use clonal propagation so a, a, a type of propagation that we call grafting mm -hmm. and that in the springtime and you know that's kind of a different story but um the the main separation between wild apples and cultivated or domestic apples are that domestic apples are are of a cultivated variety and they were grafted rather mm -hmm. than um grown from seed so a wild apple by definition is really just any apple that is grown from seed and one of a kind because it doesn't have you know, any, any exact genetic replicas in the world, it is truly one of a kind. It, you know, you can, you can imagine that apple trees have their own personality the same way that we, you know, we are all distinct, different people. Um, and so as you were saying before, apple trees do come from the, the northern Asian mountain range around the border of Kazakhstan and China. That's the center of their biodiversity. And, and there you will find big, forests of apples of all different shapes and sizes um, and it's kind of a magical sounding place so this is the home the ancestral home of the wild apple and over the the history of mankind once the you know the silk road trade route and other trade routes like the silk road opened up in the old world um, apples were transported westward into europe and then, as you can imagine, they migrated over to the New World. Um, and during this whole process, people were able to graft. People were definitely able to, you know, take cuttings from one tree that they were very, very enthusiastically, you know, fans of and graft them onto a different tree in a different country or a different landscape. But the most successful apples were the wild apples because because the biodiversity I was talking about that is in each and every seed, they're more adaptable to the laws of natural selection. They're able to 
you know, create different trees that are going to have better results in one environment over another that make them advantageous for survival. So the trees that will survive best are wild apples, apples grown from seed. And so if you take that whole evolutionary story and apply it to where we are in North America, the same, the same kind of thing happened. British and French uh, varieties of apple were brought to America and they pretty much, um, they didn't succeed at first because there was such harsh winters here and such scorching hot summers that um, the different disease pressures were just kind of too much for these old world varieties in the days before, you know, industrial agriculture could treat the diseases with chemicals. Um, and so the things that would really survive well here were ones that were unique to the North American landscape. Um, and so in the 400 or so years before apples, or sorry, since apples made it to North America, there've been, there's been a lot of time for, for deer and birds and rabbits and porcupines and all the woodland creatures that can eat apples to, to really disperse the seed throughout the landscape. So now apples have kind of uh, assimilated as, or, or naturalized, I should say, as a species in forests and people's backyards alike, you know, you're, you're likely to find wild apples in places you may never realize. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an exciting prospect to have a totally one-of-a-kind unique apple in a place that maybe you didn't know, um, but a place that could be as, as near to you as your backyard or on your commute to work or something like that. So, that's one of the things just just the foundation of that gets me very excited uh, about wild apples <laughs> sure that's fascinating so now talk to us a little bit about changing weather and changing weather climate uh, patterns and how does it affect uh, apples and orchards and things of that type well as everyone knows we are facing some serious challenges to all societal systems, but especially agricultural systems due to climate change, um, you know, drought pressure, uh, just general um, unexpected weather events and, and hard to predict and hard, hard, to, hard to reckon weather events are definitely becoming more and more frequent. Um, and so it's a challenge for tree fruit because um, the, the, there's a very fine line in the winter and spring between being a little too cold and being just cold enough because the, the tender apple blossoms in the springtime can be frozen very, very easily. So with these like inconsistent weather patterns that are, are becoming more aggravated by climate change, um, winter and spring kind of like drift into each other more frequently. It's, it's conceivable now that uh, due to polar vortex thermal events or other kinds of inconsistent temperature dips that you can have late frost um, during a really sensitive time for apple trees that can that can kill a crop. Um, and so that no matter what variety an orchard or a, a home backyard apple grower is growing, you're going to have that risk. Um, but wild apples do represent more resilient genetic pools. So you you are as an apple explorer, if you, if you could call yourself one, you might be looking for later blooming apples, apples that are going to bloom not until like the mid or end of May, maybe even early June, 
is something you'd be very excited about because the later they can blossom, the better chance you have of escaping uh, the possibility of late frost. So um, just having the ability to look for <laughs> apples that are different than the ones that you're used to seeing in farms and grocery stores, et cetera, uh, it's, it's a very valuable thing to have in the age of, of a, you know, unpredictable climate. That's very interesting. And so how do you look and how do you educate yourself more about this? Are there certain resources? So I know you have a wonderful website that I really enjoyed uh, browsing through and reading uh, your thoughts on these different issues, but are there other resources that you would also recommend perhaps books or other websites? Yes. Um, you know, as far as it depends on what type of education people are really interested in getting. If you're, if you're interested in how you can um, contribute to, uh, you know, a healthier culture of apples, then I think, I think a good place to start would be to take some time and, and learn how to identify apple trees. And you can, there's many books on this. In fact, I have one on my website, the wild apple foragers guide is available in the shop section there. Sure. Um, but it'll, it, there, one of the best things I, I would recommend for people is just to learn what, what is out there around you because the chances are, if you live in an area like new England, you know, anywhere in Massachusetts or beyond in the Northeast, I am willing to guarantee you that there are some wild apples that are very, very local, hyper local to your area that may have something interesting going on. So just heightening your awareness um, by learning about the apple resources that are close to you is a, a very good way to educate yourself. And the things that you might look for once you have that are like, okay, when does this tree blossom? Like, you know, look at the calendar when on that day that the the flowers are totally open, you know, and take note of, of that. That's a very good thing to do. Also take note in the fall when, when you're maybe collecting some fruit off the tree, take a peek at it and say, wow, this is a very pristine, clean fruit. It's amazing that, you know, a wild apple tree that is never managed by humans can achieve, uh, you know, that beautiful finish or, or remark also if it's pretty disease ridden or ugly, you know, it's, it's all good to, to take note of and educate yourself about. That is awesome. So Matt, as we're coming to the end of the interview, I have two questions for you. One is, is there something that we have not discussed, but you really would love to uh, share with this audience? And then the second question is, how can someone learn more from you or learn more about you? Absolutely. Um, well, to answer your first question, I guess I have to think about that because to, you've asked a lot of really great questions and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm wondering what else people might want to want to know, <laughs> but I mean, I could talk about apples for so long that there's like a million things that I would like to, to mention, but probably the uh, one thing, I guess, because this is a, an episode or a podcast based on wellness one thing that has been very important to me and my bosses and colleagues at Cars Cider House lately is um, regarding the use of sulfites in hard cider, which you may be familiar with, um, and some of the listeners may be familiar with in, in wine and commercially produced hard cider. But I want to just talk about that for a second, because mm -hmm. um, 
at, at Carr's Cider House, we're, we're trying to make concerted effort to move away from the use of sulfites. Mm-hmm. And I think that many, many other producers, it's not just us, there's, there's probably a whole uh, group out there who are really independently moving in that direction. Um, but sulfites are not always naturally occurring. They can be naturally occurring by the microorganisms in cider in very small amounts, but it's added by wine makers and cider makers to add stability to a cider once it's bottled or to inhibit the activity of the wild microorganisms, the ones that can produce kind of funny flavors, off flavors, um, like, like little bits of acidity and acetic acid, like vinegary tastes. Um, but it's much better if you can totally eliminate the use of sulfites because it's one of the things that contributes to people feeling like very hungover or very like adversely affected by, by the alcohol in cider or wine. And so um, I want to just suggest to the listeners out there to try and seek out cider, hard cider that doesn't use sulfites. And if you strive to make your own for, for home use or for commercial use, you know, just think about omitting sulfites and just kind of taking the equation of fermentation as apple juice plus time instead of apple juice plus yeast plus sugar plus this plus that, you know, trying to reduce the amount of inputs and just going for a natural nutritive drink that that happens to have some alcohol in it. It's all, you know, natural sugars, natural fermentations without tons of additions. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And so how can we learn more about you and from you? I know you have a book. And so if you can share with the listeners uh, the name of your book, I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it would be lovely if you tell us uh, one more time. And I will be sure to include the link to it in the show notes, as well as all the other resources that you're mentioning. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a great way for people to get in touch with me, um, which I do encourage anything that any of the listeners on this program are interested in learning more about, you should visit gnarlypippins.com, which is my website that you were talking about. And on that website, you can find more information about apples, both wild and cultivated, um, as well as a shop section that features a, a forager's field guide, which will have a lot of information in it that will help you get off the ground in terms of finding wild apples, knowing what to do with them. Um, and a lot of other kind of cool photos of what's going on in the apple world. So I suggest, I suggest checking out my website. And uh, if you're, if you're ever wondering about apples, I, my email is also on there and I'd be happy to reach out to anyone personally too. Are you on social media? Absolutely. You can find me on social media at Gnarly Pippins. And I will make sure to include those accounts as well. Matt, thank you Mm -hmm. so much. This was fascinating. I am really grateful that you were able to find the time to join me and to talk about apples and all the beauty and goodness that they offer to human beings. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lana. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Matt Kaminsky. 
I put together a recipe for fire cider that was discussed earlier in this episode, and you can find it along with all the links mentioned during this episode in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 29. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is the best way to help others learn about the Wellness Insider Network. Thank you in advance for doing that. This episode is proudly brought to you by Herbstock. Herbstock is a grassroots Boston area herbal event and organization. Herbstock hosts classes on herbal and holistic health topics, offers urban plant walks, and brings together herbal crafters from across New England, and so much more. This year's main event is on June 2nd and 3rd in Somerville, Massachusetts. Please check out the link in the show notes for additional information. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Thank you.